Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to, feed, uh, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of, his, uh, one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks. Thanks, Declan. Can you hear me up the back, Georgia? Yeah, that's okay. Um, I welcome, once again, a warm welcome to uh, public meetings, particularly if this is your first time with us. Uh, if you're joining us, uh, particularly for this week and you've been brought by a friend, then a particularly warm welcome. Um, one of the things I want to try and do, which the EU does every week, is uh, try and explain what I think that Bible passage was talking about. I'm going to try and finish with enough time to give you some questions at the end. Um, and one of the topics that well, I've been asked to speak on is this topic of belonging. Now, I don't know what this sort of image or notion of belonging conjures up for you. For some, it may be that sense of being part of something beyond yourself, your sort of meaning and purpose and trajectory in life and those sorts of things, and you, you really won't feel like you belong until you've found where you fit in life. Uh, sort of connected to that, some of us, this idea of belonging is being accepted 
and welcomed because of who we are, actually, and being recognised for some of the things about the way in which we act or the way in which we live. For others of us, this idea of belonging is tied in with security and certainty and meaning and purpose. Now, for about half of us in the room, the idea of belonging conjures up something a little bit more challenging. (laughs) Yes, that's right, HSC English, the topic of belonging. Now, as I was searching for this, I thought I could put up some images relating to HSC image, (laughs) and I knew I'd get that response. I've chosen not to do that. Um, But it's interesting, isn't it, that um, as I sort of, I've had a couple of children go through the HSC, and so belonging was a fairly dominant theme in our household for one of those particular seasons. But my question to you, if you had to sit through belonging, was this. When you sort of, it's a really interesting topic, I think, when I read through some of the notes. However, it feels very academic. It feels like you've sort of intellectualised the idea of belonging. I think my question for you is, not only were you trying to write the perfect belonging essay, partly based on whatever stimulus they gave you in the exam, how did it change your feeling about belonging? Did you feel like you sort of more deeply understood whether or not you actually belonged? I think, see, some of us, we just tend to intellectualise the things that we do. I suspect that's probably true of some of our academic studies here at university. But this idea of belonging actually is not just an intellectual thing, it's actually got quite a deep emotional engagement that we as human beings have with regard to this topic. I think we see this fairly clearly at the moment, particularly in a particular social issue that's going on, which is the tent city down in Martin Place. Now, I've not checked the news in the last 24 hours, so I'm presuming it's still there. But it's interesting, isn't it, that for many people living in that tent city down in Martin Place, for various reasons, either due to personal decisions that they've made, or through circumstance, or through things outside of their control, they've had to move from a place where they've felt that they belonged, to now go to a place to find somewhere where they belong. And it's interesting, isn't it, that as you read through some of the interviews with some of the people living in that tent city, it's almost as if as a result of them moving in there, they've found and actually formed a community. And for some of them, they say, this is now where I feel like I belong. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not you think they should keep it or move it on. We can talk about that later. It will be interesting to see whether or not the people who feel like they've found a deep sense of belonging within this community that's formed, whether or not that can continue and in what form. So the question I want to ask is, what does Jesus have to say about belonging? And I want to suggest to you that actually quite a lot, in fact, uh, much of Jesus' life and public ministry was actually about trying to enable people to belong. Now, you may have read through some of the accounts of Jesus, otherwise known as the Gospels, and you might not really have noticed that, in which case, can I encourage you to go back and read it again, sort of through this lens of belonging? For some of you, you might not be that biblically literate and you've not really read through one of the accounts of Jesus. Can I encourage you to grab a copy, Mark's Gospel or Luke's Gospel, and read through it and see what it is that Jesus is calling people back to. As we read through the accounts of Jesus, we see that often people were outsiders, sometimes as a result of the decisions they'd made in life. Sometimes, though, as a result of things that seemed to be very much out of their control. They were outsiders because of diseases or sickness or illnesses. And one of the things that Jesus actually does in restoring their physical ailments is he's also restoring them back into community. He's restoring them back to their family. But most importantly, he's restoring them back into religious communities. He's enabling people under the current sort of religious laws to be able to once again worship God 
in a way that was expected at that particular time. Now, we might not think much of that, and if you're not a religious person, you might go, well, well who cares? It's just another community. However, for the first century Jew, right worship before God was absolutely most important for them. Not only was it a moment in which they shared with others who were like-minded in a community moment, but most importantly, it was an expression of the fact that they knew as a Jew they belonged to God and sought to try and worship him rightly in that regard. So Jesus is keen to see people belong to God. But not just, if you like, in a physical sense and not just in a tangible worship sense, although these were two things that he did, I think more importantly and most fundamentally, the thing that Jesus is doing is desiring for people to belong to God relationally, which is why we consider what this means in this story that Jesus tells. So I've got the stories just up on the screen. You can follow along or you can use the, uh, the, the text that's in front of you. If you've got particular questions, my mobile number is there and so is my email address and I will get back to you as soon as I can. During Jesus' ministry, he speaks in what are called parables. They're, in many respects, stories often with some sort of hidden meaning. Interesting to note that that they were spoken in stories with hidden meanings. If you understand the meaning, it's an indication that you belong. If you don't understand the meaning of the story, it's also an indication that maybe you don't yet belong. Here in this particular parable that was read for us, Jesus tells a story about a family and the challenge of what it means to belong in the family setting. It's a family of three, the father and two sons. We're not told whether or not there were any other members of the family. But anyway, it's a challenge about how these three relate to one another. Did you hear how the younger son behaves? He asks for his share of the inheritance. Right up front, you see there in verse 12, little number 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. How's that for feeling like you don't belong? The younger son comes and says, I really don't belong here, Dad. I'm leaving. But I tell you what, I really need some means to be able to leave. So I'd like half of what's coming to me, please. We're not told explicitly what motivated the son to do that. The story, Jesus, doesn't give us any particular understanding. But consider for a moment your own personal family experiences. Now, I don't know what they are. They're probably a range of things. Is it possible that some of the things that we've had to go through in our own sort of families of origin might also be the reason for why the younger son wants out? Perhaps it's a lack of respect for his father, for whatever reason. Perhaps it's having significant difficulty getting on with his older brother. Those of us who are younger siblings might know that all too well. Perhaps it's just not being content with being the younger son. Clearly, though, the son wants out. And he does so thinking he deserves something. His share of the inheritance. I want to suggest here it's a pretty savvy move by the young son, actually. It's affronting, we'll come to that in a minute, but it's a pretty savvy move because often the tradition of the day was that the eldest son would inherit all the estate. Now here the young son's asking essentially for the bot or half the estate. Not a bad move. But notice the affront that it gives to the father. It says, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Because the inheritance was often only given 
once the person who owned the inheritance had died. So how do you think the father would have felt when the young son comes and demands this? Disappointment? This is the son that I've raised? Anger and frustration? How dare you demand this? If you want out, go, I'm giving you nothing. But notice what the father does. The father doesn't act like that. He doesn't send the son away empty-handed. What does he do in the last part of 12? He divided his property between them. At best, the father's worked out which bit of his inheritance he will divide between his two sons. At most, he takes all of his property and basically divides it between them. Which father does that before they're even dead? But it's interesting that if the father's divided all of his property between the two sons, however evenly, what does the father now have? He's essentially given away everything that was his. Whose mercy is he now at? I presume if the older son is staying and basically gets the other half of the estate, the father now, does he have his place to belong? What of the older brother? Who, as best we're told, remains quiet at this point. The older brother doesn't interject and say, no, no, stay, we can work it out. Nor does he appeal to the father and say, what are you doing? Now, notice here, perhaps the older brother wants his father's affections all to himself. And he's quite happy to see his younger sibling leave. Mind you, the older brother does pretty well out of this. Without having to confront his father over the tricky subject of inheritance, the younger son is doing all that on his behalf. The older son still stays in good relationally with his father and gets his share of the estate early. And so the younger son departs, clearly dissatisfied with his place in the family, clearly feeling like he doesn't belong. Notice what he does there? He gathers all he had and takes a journey into a far country. The idea being here is he basically gets as far away as he can Now, I suspect that even in this instance, some of us here can relate to the younger son in this regard. That may have happened in the past, it may be happening now, that growing frustration with whatever our family situation is. And maybe trying to seek a way of release from some of those difficulties and tensions. Maybe even for some of us, we've spent some time away from family, spent some time travelling just to sort of get away, clear our head, work out what's next in life and take a bit of a break. Maybe even to escape the space in which we feel like we don't quite belong or fit in. So how does it turn out for the younger brother? Well, he lands in a place and squanders his property in reckless living. Now, I'm sure none of you will have lived recklessly at all, will you? No, you'd be far too sensibly doing that. Maybe you have. Do you think that for a season he would have felt like he belonged? I suspect so. You can imagine him, he turns up a complete stranger and pretty much just splashes his cash around. Do you think people would be attracted to him? Absolutely. Do you think they'd want to go partying with him? Absolutely. Do you think he would have felt like he belonged? Suddenly, he's just got this sort of renter crowd that suddenly is here with him. I think even if we've not actually done that, we can probably imagine what that might have been like. 
Now, presumably, whatever difficulties he's been having at home with his place in the family, the relationship with his father, with his older brother, all of that would have been quickly forgotten. Maybe you sought to do the same thing personally. I guess my question to you is, how did that turn out for you? Maybe appreciate that time away. Maybe you did feel like you more strongly belonged somewhere else. Maybe you did genuinely enjoy belonging to a different group of people. But what about a prolonged period after that? Did you still feel that deep sense of belonging? Did you still feel as though you belonged as significantly as you did when you first arrived? Notice how it turns out for the younger brother. In this case, the younger brother is placed in a situation of great need due to misfortune. I want to suggest here that it's both his own doing, but also the result of this external cause, which is the great famine. His own doing because he squandered all that he had. If he perhaps had been a little bit more reserved and self-controlled, when the famine strikes, he may have had some of the inheritance left. And so his plight is he ends up feeding pigs. Now, in the parable when Jesus is telling... This is arguably the lowest of low jobs. You arguably can't get any lower than feeding pigs. And notice here that no one gives him anything. He's completely alone, completely isolated. All of the friends whom he thought he belonged to have deserted him. He now belongs really to nobody. I wonder whether or not some of us may have also felt that sense of just not belonging. That deep sense of loneliness and isolation. That we are quite literally alone. That we just don't fit in with the groups which we thought we did or we've tried to fit in with. I don't know if your experience resonates with mine, but when I turned up at university in first year, for the first couple of weeks I genuinely felt like I did not belong. I studied at one of Australia's finest institutions. Yes, that's right, yes, the University of New South Wales. (laughs) And when I turned up at first year at the University of New South Wales, there was about 25 to 26,000 undergrads there walking around the campus. Out of my year of 125 of us had gone to the University of New South Wales. And over my four-year degree, I saw none of them, none of those five except one of them in fourth year, and I didn't recognise him. Oh, he'd changed quite significantly, let me tell you. I turned up first day of university. I knew where I was going. I had my map. (laughs) I did what all first years do. I got there early, ran between classes. (laughs) So you don't do that anymore, it's second semester, okay? I was at the University of New South Wales with 25,000 other people. But in the midst of everyone just walking past me, you just feel like you don't fit in. No one knows me. No one knows my name. I don't know anybody else's name. Maybe I've done the wrong thing. Maybe I should have gone to that other fine educational institution, this one, (laughs) because that's where all my friends from school went. Maybe then I'd fit in and belong. Now, you'll be pleased to know that after a couple of weeks, I did end up fitting in and belonging and making friends and those sorts of things. But maybe that was your experience when you arrived at university. For those first couple of weeks, just going, I just don't fit in. There are all these people who are like me, university students, and thousands of first years, but I just don't fit. 
Notice what the younger son does. After some contemplation, better go to the next slide. After some contemplation, verse 17, the younger son comes to his senses and actually realises that he does belong, that he does fit in somewhere, but it's not in his current situation. Notice what he says. How many of my father's hive servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, the son recognises that he does belong, even if it's not as a son, deserving of an inheritance. Even if it's as a hired hand, he's still hopeful that he will be received and be able to belong once again. And so the younger brother returns home. And the younger brother, I think the welcome that he receives is, if you've read this for the first time, is somewhat astounding, actually, because of the return that the father gives him. The father is driven by compassion, welcomes him home, runs to him, throws his arms around him. And even as the younger brother is trying to get out the apology, the father is commanding that his son be reinstated to his former place as a son, not as a hired hand. The father has always known that this one in front of him is a son and belongs in his family. The measure of this young man's sonship was not that he was able to claim an inheritance, but that he was his father's son. The acceptance from the father comes unconditionally, recognising that this is his son who stands before him. The father says, you are my son who was once lost but are now found. You were dead but now alive. Can you imagine the great flood of relief and acceptance and belonging that must have flowed over the younger son at that moment? But what of the older son? The one who appears to belong. He has been, even by his own admission, faithful, obedient, and loyal. Let's look at it on the next screen. What's his response to his brother's return? The, young, the older son comes in. Verse 28. He is angry and refuses to go in and join the celebration. He is unwilling to participate at the return of his younger sibling. And I wonder if what's going through the eldest son's mind is, Dad, this is grossly unfair. Look at what my brother has done. He's taken half the inheritance. He's squandered it on prostitutes and reckless living, according to the text. And yet you reinstate him. Here am I. I've done everything you've always demanded of me and you've given me nothing. The older son finds this very, very difficult to accept. And yet I think the thing that the older son misunderstands is that if he was in the same place, the father, I think, would have acted exactly the same towards him. Such is the nature of the father to show this unconditional love, overwhelming mercy. But why is it then that Jesus actually tells this story? Well, a little bit earlier in chapter 15 of Luke, we see that Jesus was speaking to two particular groups of people. There were the sinners and the tax collectors and there were the religious leaders. In many respects, the parable is a story about what it means to belong to God. It's a story that shows us that in many respects, we're all like the younger son. We all desire to belong somewhere. And I think you know this to be true in your lived experience. 
We all seek and crave meaningful relationships. We all seek to try and fit in and belong. However, we often fail to do so in a manner that rightly understands our place before God and recognises God as God. Our chasing after belonging, I think, often becomes much more about our own gratification and seeking meaning and security in ourselves and our own validation. But ultimately, this particular story, I want to suggest, is not actually a story about us, primarily. It's a story that shows us the nature and character of God. In many respects, the younger son is shown to be like those who have willfully and often sought to... And the older son is shown to be like those who believe they belong to God by virtue of either their own righteousness or their obedience to God's law, not unlike the religious leaders of the day. But what the parable shows us is how God responds to both groups of people. Like the father in the story, he responds with unconditional forgiveness, motivated by compassion and love. This, friends, is the nature of the Christian God revealed to us in the Scriptures. He seeks to restore people to their right place before him and towards others, regardless of what we have done or how we have treated him. So the parable is actually an offer to belong to God, an offer made on God's terms, an offer where God is welcoming us back into his family, those of us who have been feeling far away from God or never felt that we would be deserving of God's kindness and mercy. In many respects, we all have been or are just like the younger son. We, we do try and ignore God, sometimes obviously, sometimes more subtly. We do try and seek to belong in ways that are contrary to how God would have us belong. We often all desire to belong to someone and some things which are often not always for our own good. For many of us at times, we just think we're too far away from God or that he doesn't actually exist. We have this notion that God would just not welcome us back because deep down we know what we've done. Why would God want me? And we underestimate the welcome that God might give us because we are ashamed of the way we've lived. We just don't think we need to belong to him. We think we can make it on our own. So how are you going at making it on your own? Are you genuinely seeking and achieving true satisfaction in all the things of life that you put your hand to? Are you genuinely feeling like you belong and fit in in all of the social settings and family in which you live? Well, I suspect for some of us, we sort of do have some wins in those areas of life. But for many of us, it's often a struggle and it's hard. We are, as the Bible describes, caught in sin. Some of us also might be like the older son. We have this sense of entitlement that because we've always thought we belong to God, therefore we should belong to God. Or because we compare ourselves to others and just assume that God will accept us because of what we've done. And maybe sometimes when God welcomes others and we look at them, we're a bit like the older brother. God, I've been much better than them. Why, why are you accepting them? Look at what they've done. And we are jealous towards God with regard to his mercy. And yet, how does God act towards all of us? 
Friends, he takes us as we are. No matter what it is that we've done, no matter how we've treated him, he offers unconditional forgiveness for all that we've done and he's waiting for us to return to him. Not unlike the father in the narrative, I take it, was awaiting the return of the younger son. And when we return to God, he rejoices. He establishes us in relationship with him and enables us to live rightly among others. And most of all, it means we can call him father. But what is the cost of belonging to God? Well, notice what the cost is to the people in the story. To the father, the cost was great. He'd given away half of his property, or as much as he's agreed, and wanted all of that, and it's not coming back again. Notice the cost to the son. The younger son has to weigh the cost of giving up the living standards that he's now finding himself in, which is feeding pigs. So he's starting pretty low down. But he also needs to weigh up whether or not the father would actually accept him on his return. For him to go back and fall at his father's feet and say, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. That's a fairly costly thing to recognise that you've completely stuffed up life. So in the case of our relationship before God, what does it cost us? Friends, it's free and unconditional. It actually doesn't cost us. God is the one who bears the cost. And the cost is the death of his son. When Jesus goes willingly and voluntarily to die on the cross, he takes that penalty that was due to us. Because of the manner in which we'd ignored and rebelled against God, which is what the Bible calls sin, that means we're unable to bring ourselves back to God and sin needs a payment to be made for the way in which we've treated God and ignored and rebelled against him. And in God's justice, that penalty is our death both physical eventually and also spiritual. And as we rightly know, once you die, you cannot belong to anything. And so God makes an offer that we couldn't make. Jesus dies in our place. His death is a substitute for ours. And in doing so, he makes it possible for us to be able to belong to God. That is the cost that God bears in his son going to the cross. That's what it cost God for us to be able to belong to him. Now, for some of us, the other related cost is when we accept Jesus, we do need to give up some of the things that we currently do in exchange for God's way of living. We do need to recognise that our current way of living is not in accordance with how God would have us living. And for some, that is a very costly exchange. And there may even be some in the room who say, I'm just not prepared to give up the way I'm living now. I know it's... Contrary to what God wants me to do, I'm just not prepared to give that up. But today, friends, the offer that Jesus makes is that if you are like the younger brother, then today is the day before God to come to your senses. Hear the offer that God is making to you today. Realise what God has done for you. Recognise and accept that your current manner of living is contrary to what God expects. Recognise that your desire for belonging may be as a result of you being created in the image of God and yet you're not doing that well. Realise that this offer of belonging from God will far outstrip 
any current or future offer of belonging, whatever it might be and wherever it comes from. And recognise, come to your senses, that God will welcome you back unconditionally with open arms, irrespective of how you've treated him up to this point in your life. Friends, being in a restored and right relationship with God means that we have found our place. We know where we're meant to be. We feel we've been accepted and know we are valued by him. Friends, today is a great day to belong to God through what Jesus has done. Next week I want to spend some time looking at what it costs Jesus and the implications of that for us. Can I encourage you, if you'd like to explore this topic a bit more, to come back next week. But if you've come with a friend and for the first time you've really been challenged by what the Bible says about what it means to belong to God, can I encourage you to pursue those conversations with your friend after this? I'm going to hand back to Declan. We're going to pray in response to the talk, so please bow your heads. And if you feel comfortable, say Amen at the end. Father, we thank you that you offer unconditional forgiveness regardless of what we've done. We thank you that you welcome us into your family and that it's a free gift. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that you offer this forgiveness through his death and his resurrection. Um, that sin, the penalty of sin has been paid for, that you bore the cost that we cannot pay. And thank you that we are now can be part of your family and can call you Father. We give thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.